Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands. To action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Make Peace Quickly with Your Opponent at Law. We're going to see an example of that here in the passage this morning. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8, the context of that, of course, the immediate context of 2 Samuel 8 is that the kingdom has now come to rest. King David is now king over all of Israel, the north and the south. He has no, there are no living heirs male heirs left, really, of Saul. It's it's now all united behind him. And we saw that in chapter 7. It's time of great rejoicing, blessing, feasting. They're all united around him. It has not always been that way, though. The whole part of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, you recall, is mostly the life of King David when he's not king. And 2 Samuel is the life of King David when he is king. And he was anointed king early in 2 Samuel. But then he went through many, many difficulties before he reached the throne. And it's a type of pilgrim's progress. It's much like Christians. They are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, the Apostle Paul says to the church at Ephesus. We now are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and yet there are great difficulties and dangers and toils and snares along the pilgrim's path as we make our way to the celestial city. But David has arrived at the celestial city, if you will, in a sense, with the peacefulness of the kingdom at this point, and it begins to expand, and in chapter 8, it expands more and more, far beyond what we think of the boundaries of the nation of Israel. David expands them in every direction. It is a tremendous time in the history of Israel. What we're going to see here is we're going to see the kingdom expanding in this chapter. You'll see that over and over again in every direction. And then you're also going to see an example of justice and mercy simultaneously. A pretty stunning example of justice and mercy simultaneously. And then a beautiful example of a king who recognizes, I need to make peace with this king. This is a powerful king. God is blessing this king. I need to make peace with this king. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. 
Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. That's the Euphrates. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Batah and from Baratai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when King Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver and of gold and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines and Amalek, and the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priest. And Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come before you now recognizing our great need of the healing balm of your living, active, eternal word. God, our experience tells us that many, perhaps most, will not receive that today. Our prayer, God, is that while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. We ask God that you would deliver us from lukewarmness and mediocrity and vain worship and lives that do not glorify you in weakness and rebellion and ignorance. But that in your mercy, Holy Spirit, you would come and that you would write your commandments on our heart that we might love you and love what you love. That you would grant us repentance 
and newness of life by your Spirit. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall in chapter 7, David says to God, he goes to, he goes to God and says, I want to build you a house. You remember the tabernacle is the house of worship at that time. It's a very, it's a large tent. It's a nice tent, but it's still a tent. And he wants to build God a temple after he, David, builds his own palace. And he realizes, I live in a palace. I should build a stone building for God. And God says, no, I'm going to let your son do that. But instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And he promises David what every king wants. That there'll never be a time that one of his descendants is not ruling. That there'll never be a time that his descendants will, all, his blood descendants will always be king. I mentioned to you before the oldest ruling monarchy on the earth is the Emperor of Japan. He traces his lineage back to 700 BC. But very few kings can trace their lineage back that far. But God says to David, I'm going to make you a dynasty. And it is, of course, a prophecy about Christ, that a descendant of David will be the Messiah. And that Messiah will rule and reign forever and ever. But here in chapter 8, we begin to see the expansion as he says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to actually build up a kingdom for you, and I'm also going to preserve the dynasty for you. So here in chapter 8, it says, Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took control of the chief city. The Hebrew says he took the chief city by the bridle. He took the chief city by the bridle. This is the Philistines. That's, of course, to the east, right on the coast. And they have been, all of David's life, they have been coming over into Israel and capturing cities and robbing and stealing and occupying cities for a period of time, sometimes retreating, sometimes advancing. All of David's life and long before that, throughout the entire 400-year period of the judges prior to David, they have been coming in and attacking and attacking and attacking. And now David, by the power of God as the king, goes to Philistia. And he subdues them and makes them a vassal state of his and captures their chief city and makes it his. It's a demonstration of a great reversal. Things are going in a completely different direction. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom, the Lord Christ says in Matthew 16. And this is an example of that where the kingdom is expanding. The kingdom of God is expanding and these people who previously had some strength now have none against the people of God. Verse 2, he defeated Moab. Moab is one of the other three places that are mentioned. He mentions Moab, Ammon, and the Edomites. The Moabites are part of the descendants of Lot, and the Ammonites are part of the descendants of Lot. And they are not good to the children of Israel, and God defeats them. Verse 2, he defeated Moab and measured them with a line. Now listen to this. If you can picture this in 3D, it must be one of the most frightening passages in Scripture. He defeated Moab and measured them with a line. He has a rope, making them lie down on the ground. All of the men are lying down on the ground side by side. And he measures out a rope line over them of one-third. And he has them stand up and they're executed. 
And he measures out a line again over the next third, and he has them stand up, and they're executed. But that line came right up against somebody's head. And the next person got up and walked away. The last third are pardoned. And they get up, and they walk away, and they become part of the kingdom of David. That's what salvation is. The whole world rebelling against a sovereign God and king. And that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. And he has compassion on whom he has compassion. And it doesn't depend on the man who runs, the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. And the line runs out. And all under the line the first two times are executed. In the last line, there is great mercy. Can you imagine? You cannot. But if you could, the person first in line after the line ran out. As the person right next to him stands up and is carried off and is executed. That is every person who is in Christ. Matthew seven twenty one. Matthew seven twenty one says this not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a reference to the end of the world. And at the judgment day, many will be sent into judgment and eternal damnation. And those who are in Christ will get up off their knees and enter into everlasting glory. Those who are in Christ by the mercy and the blood and merits of Christ will get up and walk toward God. What a beautiful thing that is. Look in your bulletin. This bulletin on the front page has Thomas Watson, a wonderful Puritan divine talking about the intervention of free grace. One-third of the men received free grace by King David. He quotes first 1 Timothy, Even though I, this is Paul writing to Timothy, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Literally, I was bemercied, he means in the Greek, which is what it says, it's in the passive. I was bemercied. Christians, why might not you have been in the number of those who persist in sinning? Because God has bemiracled you with mercy. See what cause you have to admire the stupendous goodness of God who has wrought a change in you and checked you in your full career of sin. Christians, You who are vessels of election were by nature as wicked as the others. There is no difference in how zealously all of those men fought against David. He did not put to death those who fought most valiantly against him. He put all of the army on the ground and spared one-third of them. Christians, you who are vessels of election were by nature as wicked as the others. 
But God had compassion on you and plucked you as brands out of the fire. He stopped you in your course of sinning when you were marching to hell. He turned you back to him by sincere repentance. Oh, here's the banner of love displayed over you. Behold, sovereign grace. Let your hearts melt in love to God. Admire his royal bounty. Set the crown of all your praises upon the head of free grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Those men who were spared understood justice and mercy. Back in our text, in chapter 8, verse 3, Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. So he's expanding his kingdom all the way to the Euphrates here. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Arameans, that's the Syrians, when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of them. And so we see another great victory. This is the third great victory, first over the Philistines to the east, to the west, excuse me, then to the Moabites, which are immediately to the east. Then he's going to defeat the Ammonites as well and the Edomites as well, who are east and southeast and further southeast. But here he's gone all the way over to the Euphrates and he's expanding his kingdom in every direction. There was a time in which the kingdom of Christ was expanding in every direction. Like the prophecy given to the prophet Daniel, that rock that comes and lands on the golden statue and crushes it. But then the rock begins to expand and take over the whole world. It's the kingdom of Christ. It's the church. And the church did indeed expand over the whole world. Its influence has been everywhere. Today, that is not the case. We are experiencing that period of time of great apostasy. And yet the truth of God's word still is coming to pass that God will return and restore all things at the return of Christ. But here we see the expansion of the kingdom and bringing tribute into the kingdom. And David is growing richer and stronger and the kingdom is expanding in every direction. Verse 7. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem. And so he is profiting tremendously as the kingdom expands. There is no help for God's enemies. God's enemies try to help and fight each other, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. David's kingdom is stronger still. Instead of a victory against King David, there's only plunder and defeat. Will Durant talked about this in his History of Civilization. One of the books is entitled Caesar and Christ. This is a Jewish man writing together with his wife, Ariel. They write a book, a history, <laughs> nine volumes of the entire history of civilization. One of the volumes is entitled Caesar and Christ, in which for about 900 pages, he traces all of the turmoil and the difficulty between the kingdom of Christ and the Roman Empire. 
and all the great martyrdom that took place and the persecutions that took place again and again and again and the many arena incidents where Christians were fed to the lions and burned alive. At the end of that book, he talks about how the church of God expanded, but expanded on its knees. This Jewish man observing history sees that that's what's happening, that the kingdom of God is expanding on its knees and the Roman Empire with all of its power and might is crumbling against this kingdom expanding on its knees. And at the end, he concludes this, Caesar and Christ had met in the arena and Christ had won. The kingdom of God is still expanding. It doesn't look like that today because we look around and only see the visible. But all of those who have passed on before, there are multitudes in heaven who are gathered as the kingdom of Christ. And we will see them at the judgment day when the people of God are assembled. And it will be a great host indeed. But not necessarily the majority. I do not think that it will be the majority. In fact, I confident it will not be the majority. Most people will not be in the kingdom of heaven. But then we turn to verse 9. Verse 9 is a shift here. Instead of David going forth and conquering and conquering, now we have a king coming wanting to make peace. This isn't the first time that's happened. You recall that when the spies get to Rahab's house, as they go into Jericho to spy out the land, Rahab says to them, we're deathly afraid of you. Our leaders are deathly afraid of you. We know what you've done. We've heard about your God. We know about the miracles and the victories and the conquests he's already given you before you crossed over the Jordan on your way to Jericho. And she pleads for her life and for the life of her family. And they grant it. And then Joshua begins the conquest. And as he begins conquering city after city after city, another group of people who have heard about this come. And they want to make peace because they're mindful that as soon as he gets to their door, he's going to destroy them because that's what he's been doing everywhere else. And so they come and deceive him and pretend they've been from quite a distance. The Gibeonites, you remember. And Joshua, in the name of the Lord, makes peace with them before he discovers that they're actually neighbors just down the street that were, in fact, scheduled for conquest. But because he gave his word in the name of the Lord, he keeps his word. And so here, King Toei comes in the same manner, verse 9. Now when King Toei, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toei sent Joram, his son, to King David. So rather than just any ambassador, he sends the prince to him, and he's wanting to make peace. He is thankful that uh, David has defeated one of his enemies, and that's a good thing. But he also recognizes that David is expanding the kingdom in every direction. And he's expanding it right in his direction. This is due north of Israel. And so he comes and is bringing gifts, it says in verse 11. King, I'm sorry, verse 10. It says, Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and of bronze. Toei, the king, is observing. He's thinking. He's responding. He's planning. He's making the pieces fit together. And he comes to the wise decision, I should make peace now while I have an opportunity. And so he does. And King David makes peace with him. Turn your Bibles to Luke. Keep your finger there, but turn to Luke. Luke 16. This is a puzzling parable for many Christians. 
but it need not be. Luke 16. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you giving an account, give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to him, self, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. This man recognized that he was coming into difficult times. And the Lord Christ is not praising his unrighteousness. He is acknowledging that even wicked people recognize when something becomes inevitable, I need to prepare for that. When something becomes inevitable, I need to prepare for that. Standing before God is inevitable. King Toei, standing before King David, was going to become inevitable. And King Toei prepared for it. And the Lord Christ says, if wicked people are smart enough to prepare for the inevitable, how much more should those who know God, how much more should those who know God or know of God? Matthew five twenty five from the Sermon on the Mount is a parallel passage in a sense. Matthew five twenty five says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way to court, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. God is the great cosmic opponent at law of all sinners, and all are sinners. God is the great cosmic opponent at law of all sinners and all are sinners. We come into the world sinning. We come into the world sinners. The Westminster Divines in 1647 said it this way, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life to the pains of death and the pains of hell forever. The miseries of death and the pains of hell forever. Listen to that again. All mankind by their fall, meaning you, me, in the fall of Adam, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God. We're not neutral with God. We become enemies of God. We came into the world enemies of God. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse. And so made liable to all the miseries of this life, 
to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. That's our position. And we need to understand that indeed, we, like King Toei, like the unjust steward, like Rahab, like the Gibeonites, need to flee toward Christ. I remind you that the Gadarene demoniac in Mark chapter 5, no one could bind him. He hung out in the tombs and cut himself and hurt himself and was a madman out of his mind. When he saw Christ, he had the wisdom, the wisdom to run toward Christ and not run from him. The reality here, back in our passage in 2 Samuel 8, is that he is bringing his resources, the king is bringing, Toei, is bringing his resources to David. He is marshalling his resources and bringing them uh, to David. He is doing the best that he can with what he has to try to make peace. And one of the questions that we would have to ask ourselves today is, how are we managing our resources? How are we managing our resources to eternal advantage? Well, the first question that you have to ask yourself is, what are those resources? When we think of resources and things, we tend to think of material possessions. And while that would certainly be included, no doubt, our material possessions will not help us in regard to making peace with our opponent at law at the great judgment bar of heaven. But what will? What are the resources that would help us? The spiritual resources. The first one is the Word of God. How are you managing? How are you being a good steward over the resource of the Word of God? The day of judgment is coming. Death is coming. What do we know about that day and beyond? Are we reading and studying and learning? Are we repenting? Are we asking good questions and seeking good answers? Are we asking the question of, is there a God? Has he spoken? What did he say? Are we asking the question of, why is biblical Christianity true? We need to be asking those questions and pursuing that and having a confidence with it. The question is, is God your opponent at law? Is God your opponent at law? 1 Corinthians gives us a list of some people who are opponents to God. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. I can't tell you how many people live in Wilmington, North Carolina, and believe that you can sleep around and be a child of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor the covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That one is a a little easier for us to take. The passage in Galatians is a little more challenging for us about whether or not we're an opponent of God. In Galatians chapter 5, it lists some more. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, it says this, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, 
And things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We see a very clear teaching in Scripture as to who is the opponent, and we want to be a good resource of the Word of God and learn of who God is and of our position before Him. The Lord Christ says in Matthew 10, Do not suppose that I come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. A sword. He will bring peace as the great peacemaker, but He will do so justly, and He will do so with authority. He will do so by holiness and righteousness and not by sweeping things under the rug. There is a great urgency here, a great urgency. Many of you have on your bulletin a card attached to it. I'm not sure it got attached to all of them. That card is a Bible verse. It says 2 Corinthians 5. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul says we are pleading with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Like King Toei recognizing the inevitable and that it has not gone well with the others. And so he comes bearing gifts to make peace with King David. What other spiritual resource do we have at our availability beyond the Word of God? The Holy Spirit. To see the kingdom. The Bible says we cannot even see the kingdom unless God were to enable us to do so, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We need the Holy Spirit to understand the word of God. Yes, we do have the Bible, but we need to be pleading with God that he would open our eyes and that we would see it and read it clearly and rightly, rationally, reasonably, and put things together, the whole Bible together. And the Holy Spirit grants us his relationship, that he would lead us, that he would be a comforter to us, and that he would strengthen us supernaturally. And that is a resource that many of us are trampling underfoot by ignoring it. And we need to be pleading with the Holy Spirit every time we come to the Word of God that he would grant us eyes to see. Another spiritual resource are ruling and teaching elders for instruction and for counsel and for prayer. To seek out wise counsel and the prayer and the instruction in the Word of God. We need to do that. There is great misunderstanding today in the visible church. Well, back in our passage, after King Toei makes peace with King David, it says in verse 15, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Justice and righteousness. We want justice and righteousness when it comes to others and how they treat us. It was Woody Allen who once said, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member. We want justice and righteousness if it's by a God restraining others. But when we examine the blackness of our own hearts, we would be very slow to ask for justice and righteousness. We understand it's the right thing, but we would need something beyond justice and righteousness. We would need great mercy. And in the cross of Christ, righteousness and mercy kiss, justice and grace hug and meet. It is a beautiful relationship that the gospel of Christ does not compromise his justice or righteousness as Christ himself pays the penalty for the sins of his people and his people with that line right out over their head. Then 
get up and walk away, walking toward God. Verse 15 in the passage says that justice and righteousness are being administered, and that is the purpose of the church, that we are to go forth with justice and righteousness, with salt and light, with truth and love. That is the mission of the kingdom of Christ, as much as it was for David and his kingdom. And yet there are great difficulties all about us. We see them everywhere if our eyes are open, and many eyes are not open. But in the book of Revelation, the Lord Christ comes back and speaks to his people one more time. And he sends out seven letters through the Apostle John in seven directions. And in those letters, he calls them to repent. In chapter 3 of verse 14, chapter 3 verse 14, we read this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is not a reference to he wants you to be righteous or sinner. When he says cold or hot, he doesn't mean, I wish you were really holy or really sinful. Water in that day was valuable as a hot spring or as a cool, refreshing spring. Healing spring, a hot spring, or a cooling, refreshing spring. That's what he's referring to. But lukewarm water isn't medicinal, and you don't want to drink it. That's the reference there. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched. And who's he writing to? A church. He's writing to the church. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are there today. There is great need for personal reflection and repentance as we consider the great influence of the world around us. It is indeed becoming like Christ that is our mission. And it's easy to get busy with things and lose sight of that. The imago dei is what is being restored in a saint. The likeness of Christ, the likeness of Christ, the fruit and gifts of the Holy Spirit is what we're to be looking for in our lives. And when we don't see it, we need to be crying out to the Holy Spirit for him to take whatever action would be available and necessary in that regard. This describes this passage we just read. The letter to Laodicea describes much of the visible church today, but it also describes much of the Reformed church. Much of the Reformed church has lost its way getting caught up in a stream of data 
of just precise theology. And they're very happy with their precise theology and have lost the understanding of head and heart and hands and the very likeness and love of Christ. We ourselves recognize the great need of this. There is today limited head, in many cases no heart, and limited hands, but the gospel is a call to our head and our heart and our hands. The prophet Isaiah ends his prophecy in the last chapter this way. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But on this one will I look. He who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. There is a great need for truth and trembling. This is vitally important. It is the one thing needful and necessary today that we would understand this to make peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ before we see him face to face at the judgment day in your bulletin is that hymn that we just sang and you may not have grasped the depth of it as you sang it. There's a point I long to know oft it causes anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? If I love, why am I thus? Why this dull and lifeless frame? Hardly sure can they be worse who have never heard his name. John Newton is acknowledging the remaining sin in his life. A very holy man and yet very mindful of sin in his life. When I turn my eyes within, all is dark and vain and wild, filled with unbelief and sin. Can I deem myself a child? If I pray or hear or read, sin is mixed with all I do. Brothers and sisters, Christians who are born again resonate with this. You who love the Lord indeed, tell me, is it thus with you? Yet I mourn my stubborn will. I don't want to be like this. Romans 7. Find my sin a grief and thrall. Should I grieve for what I feel? If I did not love at all, could I joy his saints to meet? Choose the ways I once abhorred? Find at times the promise sweet. He's not even willing to say I always find it sweet because of my sin, because of my doubts and weakness of my flesh. Find at times the promise sweet if I did not love the Lord. And then he takes it to God. Lord, decide the doubtful case. Thou who art thy people's son, Shine upon thy work of grace, if it be indeed begun. Let me love thee more and more. If I love at all, I pray. If I have not loved before, grant me to begin today. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we are somewhat mindful, at least for the moment of the uncertainty of this life and the certainty of the life to come. We have no promise 
or assurance from you that we will make it safely home today. And that holds true for our genetic family, for our neighbors, for our friends and co-workers and others. And we ask, God, that you would yet save many. Holy Spirit, that you would indeed move on hearts and enliven them that we may see the blackness of ourselves and the goodness and rightness of all your ways and that we might treasure that way of escape in Christ Jesus and his gospel and his cross and his blood and his death. Heavenly Father, the only thing we bring is the blood of Christ. We are robed in his righteousness by faith. And we add nothing to that. God, we do pray that as many as are in Christ Jesus, that we might draw near to you with great confidence and be comforted and encouraged in the precious promises of your word that we too would be earnestly desiring of all godly repentance. As we hear that word, on this one will I look, he who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. God, we pray that you would take these eternal truths and sow them deep into our souls this day. And that you would not allow the evil one to come like the birds of the air and gobble up the seed of your word. But that instead, the roots would go deeper still and the fruit would come forth. Fruits of repentance, of godly sorrow, of the glory of your holy name as you gather worshipers in spirit and in truth. God, we do praise you that your steadfast love endures forever and that the blood of Christ continues to cry out more effectively than the blood of Abel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand now to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.